There we go. Good morning. It's wonderful to see each and every one of you this morning. I'm going to steal a line from Sister Burgess and say that we have the blessing to be out on this beautiful rainy day. I think she said it perfectly when she said that. It is absolutely a gorgeous day for us to gather together and to worship our one and true God. And any time that we have that opportunity, being gathered with one another, I am just certainly lifted up and blessed. I want to encourage every, uh, and thank every single one of you for being here. Thank and welcome our visitors for being with us. Hope that you know that you are certainly our welcomed guests. And if you would stick around a little bit after services, we would be pleased to get to know you a little bit better. This morning we are going to be talking about something that we just sang about, really, to an extent. Soldiers of Christ arise. As, as soldiers of Christ, what does that mean to us? Well, one thing it means is that we belong to Christ. Why is that such a comforting thought to think of that we belong to Christ? Well, this morning, if you would go ahead and be taking out your Bibles, we're going to be talking a little bit about why that is such a comfort. And we're going to be using the next few minutes to move forward in our study and get a better understanding of who God is and and what He has done. But before we do that, I want to ask you, have you ever had that friend? That one friend that, despite how many times they say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this with you, whether it be maybe go out to a movie, or maybe it be get together for dinner plans, or maybe it's even go on a trip somewhere. Say, so I'm going to do this with you, but you know in the back of your mind that at the last minute you're going to get that phone call that something has come up. Something's happened, and I'm not going to be able to make it. Or maybe you don't even get a call at all. They just, no show, don't know where they are, and you realize, I've been stood up. I think we've all probably had that friend, and, and if you have, be aware that you are in good company. And what we begin to realize about them is they aren't as dependable as we might have once thought they were. Now, if you are that friend this morning, I'm just going to very quickly encourage you to let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you make plans, stick to them. But that is not the purpose of our study this morning. The purpose of our study is not to focus on the dependability of man, but rather to focus on the dependability of God. Throughout history, God has shown time and time again that He is someone who keeps His promises, someone who will hold up His end of the deal. He won't back out at the last minute. He won't decide that something else looks more fun and leave you hanging. In short, God is reliable, and He has given us multiple examples of this. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at a couple of these examples and examine exactly what it means to serve and worship a dependable God. So when we look at this idea of dependence, the first example that I think of, we saw there in our, at the, on that opening slide in Acts 27, we have an example of Paul. In Acts chapter 27, we, we see how Paul depended upon God. Now maybe if you're like me, when you think of Paul, maybe you think of someone who is, Bold, someone who's stood before some of, of the, the most prominent men of his time. He stood before Felix. He stood before Festus, Agrippa, Caesar. He stood before these men and he, he talked to them about, about the gospel and then did something that was very, very hard for, for people to do, and that's approach people with authority. Maybe when we think of Paul, we think of... Um, we think of him at the Areopagus, in front of all the Athenians, all these people that he had no idea who they were, proclaiming a message to them that was very foreign to them. But how often do we think of Paul as he hopelessly floated around the Mediterranean Sea? <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Um, 
in this passage, we're going to read Acts 27, and we're going to read the entirety of the chapter, verses 1 through 44. It's a bit of a long passage, but it's going to go a long ways in teaching us a valuable lesson about who Paul is and about what he did. So starting in verse 1, it says, When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, they proceeded to deliver Paul and some, and some other prisoners to the centurion of the Augustan, cohort named Julius. And embarking in an Adromitan ship, which was about to sail to the regions along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul with consideration and allowed him to go to his friends and receive care. From there we put out to sea and sailed under the shelter of Cyprus, because the winds were contrary. When we had sailed through the sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy, and he put us aboard it. When we had sailed slowly for a good many days and with difficulty had arrived off Nidus, since the wind did not permit us to go further, we sailed under the shelter of Crete off Salmon. And with difficulty sailing past it, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. When considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo on the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul. Because the harbor was not suitable for wintering, the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there. If somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor off Crete, facing southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. When the moderate south wind came up, supposing that they had attained their purpose, they weighed anchor and began sailing along Crete, close in shore. But before very long, there rushed down from the land a violent wind called Arequalio, and when the ship was caught in it and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along, running under the shelter of a small island called Clotta, where we were scarcely able to get the ship's boat under control. After they, after they had hoisted it up, they used supporting cables in undergirding the ship, and fearing that they might run aground on the shallows of Syrtis, they let down the sea anchor, and in this way let themselves be driven along. The next day, as we were being violently storm-tossed, they began to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Since neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small storm was assailing us, from then on, all hope of our being saved was gradually abandoned. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice, and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night an angel of God, to whom I belonged and whom I served, stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore keep up your courage, men, for I believe, God, that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. But when the fourteenth night came, as we were being driven around in the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors began to surmise that they were approaching some land. They took soundings and found it to be twenty fathoms, and a little farther they took another sounding and found it to be fifteen fathoms. 
Fearing that we might run aground on the rocks, they cast four anchors from the stern and wished for daybreak. But as the sailors were trying to escape from the ship and had let down the ship's boat into the sea on the pretense of intending to lay out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men remain in the ship, you yourselves cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it fall away. Until the day was about to dawn, Paul was encouraging them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have been constantly watching and going without eating, having taken nothing. That, taken nothing. Therefore I encourage you to take some food, for this is for your preservation, for not a hair from the head of any of you will perish. Having said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. All of them were encouraged, and they, they themselves also took food. All of us in the ship were 276 persons. When they had eaten enough, they began to lighten the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. When the day came, they could not recognize the land, but they did observe a bay with a beach, and they resolved to, to drive the ship onto it if they could. And casting off the anchors, they let them into the sea, while at the same time they were loosening the ropes of the rudders and hoisting the foresail to the wind. They were headed for the beach. But striking a reef where two seas met, they ran the vessel aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to be broken up by the force of the waves. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners so that none of them would swim away and escape. But the centurion wanted to bring Paul safely through, kept them from their intention, and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. The rest should follow, some on planks and other on various things from the ship, and so it happened that they were all brought safely to land. Now, if we were to continue to read on to the next chapter, we would say that once they got to land, some other things happened, such as Paul now is bitten by a viper. This is something times which is extremely fatal. And so when we start to read this and we start to understand a little bit what's going on, we know that Paul is going to Rome as he, has been, as, as he knows he is supposed to be doing. It's the will of God. We begin to ask ourselves questions like, why is Paul suffering such extreme trials? They, they, as we see him, they were out on the, on the Mediterranean Sea. Their boat has been driven out of control. They managed to somehow get it back under control behind this island of Clauda, but they say just barely were they able to do that. They deploy the sea anchors, and I don't know about you, but it sounds like they are having to hold this boat together. It says in verse 17, they're using the supporting cables to undergird the ship. I'll say that I don't know a lot about sailing. I've been on very few boats my whole life, and none of them had sails. But if it comes to a point where you have to physically tie the ship together so it doesn't break apart, I imagine you're in some pretty real trouble at this point. And then they are shipwrecked. They, they, the boat runs aground. It is being broken apart, and, and they are forced to abandon the ship. But it says that they all make it to the, to the shore only for Paul to be bitten later by a snake. You know, I look at all this, and I, and I ask myself, why did this happen? Why on all, did all these things go on? And it notes here that Paul and all the others on the ship, in verse 20, had nothing left to hope for. They had nothing left to hope for. That is a, a remarkable um, point in this story, that they had, all hope had been driven from them. Even um, Luke, who is the author of Acts, he, he uses this word us as he talks about this, that, or, or we, that they had all abandoned hope. Now look um, over in Acts chapter 23, 
In Acts chapter 23, you're going to notice that this is a remarkable difference from what happened to him here. In Acts chapter 23, starting in verse 11, we'll read, But on the night immediately following, the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must witness at Rome also. This is Acts chapter 23, verse 11. This is where Paul is getting his command that you're going to Rome. You're going to go do what you've been doing in Jerusalem and around these areas. You're going to go do that in Rome. It says in verse 12, When it was day, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves under an oath, saying they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this plot. They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have bound ourselves under a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you and the council notify the commander to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case by a more thorough investigation. And we, for our part, are ready to slay him before he comes near the place. So Paul is under in, in Roman control right now. They've got him in the Roman barracks. And these Jews have said, talk to the Romans, tell them that we want to look at his, his case again. We want to examine it a little more fully. And while he's on his way here, we have, we have bound and determined ourselves that we are going to kill him. But the son of Paul's sister, in verse 16, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. And he came and he entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Lead this young man to the commander, for he has something to report to him. So he took him and led him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to lead this young man to you, since he has something to tell you. The commander took him by the hand, and stepping aside, began to inquire of him privately, What is it that you have to report to me? He said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down tomorrow to the council, as though they were going to inquire, some more, <clears throat> inquire somewhat more thoroughly about him. So do not listen to them, for more than forty of them are lying in wait for him, who have, who have, them, or who have bound themselves under a curse not to eat or drink until they slay him. And now they are ready and waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man go, instructing him, Tell no one that you have notified me of these things. And he called to him the two, two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready by the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea. With seventy horsemen and two hundred spearmen, they were also to provide mounts to Paul on, on and also to provide... Excuse me. They were also to provide mounts to put Paul on and bring him safely to the Felix, the governor. So in this passage, we read about a remarkably different um, experience that Paul has. Again, we do see Paul's life is in danger once again. Now there are these 40-some-odd men who have determined by an oath that they are going to put a stop to Paul and what he is preaching, and they're going to do it right now. And, and they're going to do it for good. They're, they're sick and tired of it. They're fed up. And so Paul is now in this scary situation. Once again, his life is threatened. But he is warned ahead of time by his nephew. Notice the difference now between the two situations. I'm sure Paul put his faith in God. But he had. He had to have been hoping that his nephew would come through. He had to really be hoping that his nephew would get to the commander and tell him what he had heard. And he had to really be hoping that the commander would do something about it. He wouldn't just let him be killed, but would rather protect him. That is what's so mark remarkable about what happened later on during that same trip. Out at sea, it says they had lost all hope. They had nothing left to hope in. 
He couldn't hope in somebody coming to rescue him. They couldn't hope in the Coast Guard that, that would show up and, and protect them. They had nothing left to hope in except God. That was all that they had left was God. And in this, he learned that God is all-sufficient. He is all-sufficient. The word sufficient, comes. it's defined as enough to meet the needs of a situation. God provided Paul with just what he needed, right when he needed it. Notice how he allowed Paul to be in chains. He allowed Paul to be in danger. He even allowed Paul to be shipwrecked and to be bitten by a snake. But he allowed all this to happen in Paul's life so that he could see just how dependable God was. God had told Paul, you're going to Rome. And he was going to be faithful to that promise as long as Paul was faithful to fulfill God's will. So what does this mean to us? Just as God was all-sufficient on the tempestuous waters of the Mediterranean, He is also all-sufficient in the stormy seas of our lives. We know that trials are going to come. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22. Verse 22 says, Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We know trials are going to fall upon us. And sometimes those trials are going to be quite difficult. Sometimes it's going to be trials that we in this country are fortunate to not have to deal with, as others in other countries, like being persecuted and even being put in prison for believing in Jesus and for, and for obeying Him. But things that we do have to deal with that are very real for us are trials such as the death of a loved one. When a family member or a close personal friend dies, someone maybe that we look to for so much guidance and for so much help, this is a time when we might wonder, why did this happen? Or even financial hardships. Money, money is something that we all you know, place so much emphasis on. We feel like we can't live without it. But all of a sudden something happens where all of a sudden we are facing a very, very hard time with our finances. Maybe, maybe it was something that was on, on our part that we weren't, very, uh, we weren't very good stewards with our finances. Or maybe it was something that we had no idea was coming. An injury or an accident that places us in this situation. Or even problems within our relationships. Problems with our, within our marriages or with our friends and our family. When these trials come upon us, sometimes we might ask ourselves, we might say, I'm trying to serve God. I'm trying to do what's right. Why is this happening to me? Why am I going through this? And it's these, these times we might want to stop and consider and ask ourselves the question, who do we depend on? For some of us, we might depend on people. But if we depend on other people, I want to suggest to you that that will always leave us feeling lonely. Some of us might depend on our finances. But if we depend on our finances, that will always leave us feeling broke and impoverished. Or maybe we depend on entertainment. We depend on the fun things in life that occupy our time. But if that's what we depend on, 
we will always be left feeling bored and anxious. God wants us to turn our dependence to Him and solely on Him, for there is nothing greater in which we can depend on. That's why we read in James chapter 1 and verse 2 that we should rejoice in our trials. James chapter 1 and verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your, trial, of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Our, tri- our trials build us up. Our trials build up this endurance. But to, in doing that, they, they remind us who it is that we serve. They remind us that He is able to see us through any situation that might befall us just as He saw Paul and all those 200 some odd men that were on that boat in those storms in the Mediterranean. In fact, by persevering through our trials, we are blessed not by becoming stronger on our own, but by becoming stronger and understanding how God was faithful to us. And so we might ask ourselves, are we going to learn that lesson? Well, we could look at Paul and say, how did he come out of this? You know, when I think of Paul, so oftentimes I think of him as the guy who was standing on the very front of the ship as the waves are splashing on him and the water and the wind's blowing, and he's standing out there and he's like, it's okay, we're going to make it. And when the water and the ship fell apart and he's swimming to shore, he gets up at shore and he's like, man, I'm a really good swimmer. And whenever the snake bites him, he pulls the snake off and flings it aside like it's nothing, it's a little worm. I, I always kind of pictured Paul like that as a kid. I, I really fantasized Paul into this great big uh, amazing person, but Paul was a man. In fact, it says that the angel came to him and said, don't be afraid. Paul was just like me and you. They haven't seen the stars for two weeks. The waves are pushing him around. They don't know where they are, and he's scared. But when he comes out of this, you can guarantee that he learned a valuable lesson, and you can know that by some of the things that he talks about later. Look over in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter, chapter 1, and in verse 8. Notice the words he says here. He says in verse 8, For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of our life. Indeed, we had a sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God, who raises the dead, who delivered us from, such, from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on, on whom we have set our hope, and He will yet deliver us. Paul had learned at this point, it wasn't me who got me out of this. I didn't do a great job in, in holding all the crew together and keeping all the, the soldiers from killing us and swimming to shore and having an immune system that could fight off the poison of this snake. No, it was God who protects us. It is God in whom I should be putting my dependence in. Paul could have simply said, back in, in, in Caesarea, whenever the Jews were trying to tell him, don't go to Jerusalem. He could have said, I know God is dependable, but I'm not going to take advantage of it. I'm just going to stay here. That's not what he did. He didn't heed the advice of those around him, but rather listened to the words of God and said, I've got something that I have to do, and I'm going to do it. But what about Jonah? Jonah 
didn't take advantage of, advantage of the dependence of God. When he was told to go to Nineveh, he ran. He ran the opposite direction and tried to get as far away from his uh, responsibilities as possible. The Israelites, the Israelites didn't take advantage of the dependence of God. When they were commanded to go into and to conquer Canaan the first time, they feared. They feared what they were asked to do. What do we learn from all these examples? Are we taking advantage of God's dependability? Well, the first step to doing this is we have to give up our independence. We must give up our independence. Now, the, the word independent, just in case you're interested, the definition of this is not contingent on something else for existence. Independence means not contingent on something else for existence. And if you're like me, you went, what does contingent mean? So I looked that up too. Contingent means dependent. You're not dependent on something else for existence. There is a great example in the Bible of us, of a person who had to literally struggle his way out of independence, and that's Jacob. He had to learn this the hard way. Well, when we look back at him as a youth, we see that he was very cunning. He was very ambitious. He was self-seeking. We see him take advantage of Esau, his brother, in a moment of physical weakness. He purchases his birthright for him for the very large one lump sum of one bowl of soup. He then disguises himself as Esau. He tricks his elderly and blind father into giving him the blessing that normally went with the birthright. He is then tipped off by his mother, and he evades the intentions of his brother to kill him. And then later on, we see him down in Mesopotamia, where he lives with his uncle Laban. And what does he do here? He marries both of Laban's daughters and ends up with most of Laban's wealth. From the worldly view, you look at Jacob and went, you did pretty good. You got what wasn't yours. You, you, you got two wives. You got all this money. People look at, would look at that today and maybe say he knew how to get what he needed. He was looking out for number one. <clears throat> but look what happens when God tells him, Jacob, it's time to go home. He's headed back, and along the way, he meets a stranger. Turn over to Genesis chapter 32. Along the way, he meets this stranger, and he wrestles with him all night. In verse 24, we start reading, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there, so Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Peniel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is in the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. One of the first things we see in this passage, when we look at this passage, something that has always given me a bit of a hard time, a thing about this passage that I've always struggled with, and that is, who is this man that he's struggling? Who is this man that he's wrestling with? 
First we see he's called, he's called a man in chapter 24. A little bit later, later, Jacob says that he has seen the face of God. He, he admits that he, this man was, was God. And then later in Hosea, Hosea would, would say that he had wrestled with the angel. And so with it, we know that this is a man who is also God, who is an angel, which is just to say a, a messenger of God. And we can get some ideas of who that is. But the point I want to make for certain is the identity of who this exactly is may be debatable. People might argue this until the end of time, but the one thing that is absolutely not debatable is there is no reason we should feel like Jacob was winning in this divine matchup. And that's what causes trouble for me, is because for so long, as many others, we have read verses like verse 28, or verse 25, when it says that when he had saw he, that he had not prevailed against him. We read that, and also in verse 28 it says later that, that Jacob um, says, For your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. We read that and think, well, Jacob must have really been doing something amazing here, wrestling with this, this man from God, that, that, the angel, that, that he is prevailing against him. And for some reason in most of my life, the way I pictured this in my little brain whenever I saw or heard this story was Jacob had this figure in a headlock. He's got him down and he's like, I'm not letting go of you until you bless me. But you know, I don't think anymore that that's at all what was going on. I don't read this story like that anymore. The way I view it now is that Jacob was wrestling with this guy and he touched his hip and his hip was dislocated. And at this point right here, Jacob realizes without a doubt that he is completely outclassed in this fight. They may have been wrestling all night, but if this guy can just touch my thigh and it dislocates, he's been holding back. I haven't been really holding my own. And now I see Jacob so much more differently not with this figure in a headlock, but maybe grasped around his leg, being drugged through the desert, begging for a blessing, saying, I will not let go until you bless me. In fact, Hosea again describes him as, as weeping and sobbing for favor. This is when Jacob prevailed, when Jacob surrendered, when Jacob gave up his independence that's when, verse 28 happens, he prevailed. It was after that lesson that Jacob was allowed to receive his inheritance. He was allowed to be reconciled with his brother. Excuse me. And so, the lesson that we would have to ask ourselves is have we given up our independence? Have we surrendered that ourselves? For Americans, that's a hard thing to ask. It's a hard thing to ask because every year we celebrate our independence. The 4th of July is such an important holiday for us. We are America, home of the brave and the free. Listen to what Peter said in, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 16. He said, act as free men, but use it as bond slaves of God. So this morning, let me ask you a couple questions. The first one being, who have you been depending on? What have you clung to in life? 
Have you been using your brute strength as Jacob was to kind of power your way through your struggles? You push back the pain and the tears and realize that you've been not pushing back, you've not been pushing yourself ahead, but you've been pushing back against God. God who in reality doesn't want to wrestle with you. He wants to bless you. He wants to give you what you need, but you need to surrender first and quit fighting against Him. That's exactly what Jacob did. He surrendered to a being who was infinitely more greater than him, who had an infinitely greater power than he. And likewise, we have a Lord who can fill all of our needs. We are lonely. We are broken. We are tired and we are morally bankrupted. We are hungry and we are thirsty and we are bored and He is dependable to fill us in every way and in every need if we would only place our dependence on Him and stop depending on ourselves or others. That's what Jesus said in John 14 and verse 6. He said, He is the way, the truth, and the life. The fact is we are never going to find the way. We are never going to know the truth. We are never going to have life until we surrender ourselves to Him as the Lord. Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 11, and in verse 28, <clears throat> Jesus said, Come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus told us He has a yoke for us to take. A yoke is a device that fastens animals to a tool of some sort. Maybe it be a, a, a horse and a and cart. No, a horse and a buggy. Oftentimes it's oxen and a plow. We can... We, we, probably can remember sometimes maybe in Bible class when we saw uh, images of, of two big oxen with the, the wooden beam over top of them, the yoke that held them together, that hooked them to the plow with the, the farmer behind them plowing the ground as they pulled it. The operator of that plow controls the oxen. He controls where they go. He controls how much work they do. And, he, and these oxen, they are completely dependent on that operator. They are dependent that he will not work them to death. They are dependent on him that he will water them when they need to be watered, that he will feed them when they need to be fed. That is what Jesus is telling us. He says, He is saying, Come to me, place your dependence on me, and I will take care of you. I will take care of you physically, I will take care of you spiritually, I will give you just what you need right when you need it. How, uh, excuse me, who have you been depending on in your life? The second question I would ask you is, are you willing to surrender your independence today? Adam and Eve were promised this in the beginning. They were totally dependent on God for everything. But the serpent came along and told them, you don't have to be. You can be just like him. You just eat of that fruit. Yes, the fruit that he told you not to eat of because he wants you to be relying on him, which was true. He does want us to be relying on him. But Satan turned it into a negative sense for them. Oh, how often we believe the lie that somehow we can depend upon ourselves. 
How often we believe the lie that we can save ourselves, that we can get ourselves through this life, that we can get ourselves to heaven. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and look in verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, "For For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We are saved in so many ways because God graciously has allowed it through putting our faith in Him. So maybe that's the question we should ask next. We should ask next, what does that mean to put our faith in Him? For starters, it looks like giving up our dependence on ourselves and submitting ourselves in obedience to Him. How do we do that? Romans 10, verses 9 through 10 starts it. It gives us a good idea of how to, how to make the first steps in that. Romans 10, verse 9 through 10 says <clears throat> that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. We must believe in Jesus. We must believe who He is, who He says He was. We must believe that He died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins, to take that that great debt that we could never pay and pay it for us once and for all. And we must confess as much before others. But it doesn't stop there. We understand that there is more to it than just that. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 Peter, in talking to the men at the day, on the day of Pentecost, when they ask, ask him, what should we do? He says in verse 38, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are to turn away from all the things in our lives, from the independence that we have so long held on to. I can get myself through it. I can handle it. We are to turn away from that mentality. We are to turn away from anything that sets itself against God, any sin in our life, and we are to turn ourselves fully and dependently on Him. And then we are to be baptized. As He says here, the only way for us to have forgiveness of sins is through obediently following Him and letting Him work that magnificent and miraculous work in baptism on us. But it doesn't stop there. We must like Paul and Jacob, or like Abraham, or Noah, or any of the many examples that we can find throughout the Scriptures. We must view God, we must view Jesus as simply enough. It is at this point we will find that we don't need things of this life to cover our pains. We don't need alcohol to cover up when we've been hurt. We don't need hatred to cover up when someone has done us wrong. We don't have to get the last word in with our neighbor or our co-worker or a family member to feel bigger or better than them, to feel like we've won an argument. We don't need to understand every single detail about how God did what He did or about how the things in the past went down or why things happened to us today. We don't have to get through this life on our own. 
We can't depend on ourselves, but we can depend on God. Open your songbooks. Open your songbooks to number 540. That's the song of invitation we will be singing in just a moment. Come unto me. And I hope these words will sound very familiar to you. We just read them in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. As we sing this song of encouragement, I would hope you know that you have a glorious, glorious opportunity in front of you to accept the invitation that Christ extends. He invites you to take His yoke, to cast off your independence for a life dedicated to serving Him. If you desire to do that this morning, I would like you to know that we desire to assist you in that. In just a moment as we sing this song, if you will step out of that aisle and walk down here and let us know that that be your intention, we want to help you do what God has asked you to do. But it doesn't stop after you become a Christian. You've already taken those steps, maybe. And somewhere during this life's journey, you have stumbled. And you have fell down. And you are desperately in need of getting back up and continuing on on that journey. We want to stand here and to encourage you to stretch out your hand because Christ is already stretching out His. From the moment you stumbled, He was there to pick you back up. If only we would be obedient and follow after Him. Whatever your need would be this morning, I would encourage you that the God of heaven and the God of earth, the creator and the sustainer of this life and of the life to come, is completely dependable and is waiting on you. Won't you please come forward right now as we stand and as we sing?